Chapter Fifteen, Section One of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Fifteen, Section One, The Sons of the Covenant. The B'nai Bris, the Sons of the Covenant, sent no representative to the club balls, knowing neither of waltzes nor of dress coats and preferring death to the embrace of a strange dancing woman. They were the congregation of which Mr. Belkovitch was president, and whose synagogue was the ground floor of Number 1 Royal Street. Two large rooms knocked into one, and the rear partitioned off for the use of the bewigged, heavy-jawed women who might not sit with the men, lest they should fascinate their thoughts away from things spiritual. Its furniture was bare benches, a raised platform with a reading-desk in the centre, and a wooden curtained ark at the end containing two parchment scrolls of the law, with a silver pointer and silver bells and pomegranates. The scrolls were in manuscript, for the printing-press has never yet sullied the sanctity of the synagogual editions of the Pentateuch. The room was badly ventilated and what little air there was, was generally sucked up by a greedy company of wax candles, big and little, stuck in brass holders. The back window gave on the yard and the contiguous stables of a dairyman, and the lowing of his cows mingled with the impassioned supplications of the worshippers, who came hither two or three times per day to batter the gates of heaven, and to listen to sermons more exegetical than ethical. They dropped in mostly in their workaday garments and grime, and rumbled and roared and chorused prayers with a zeal that shook the window panes, and there was never lack of a minion, the congregational quorum of ten. In the West End synagogues are built to eke out the income of poor minion men or paid congregants. In the East End rooms are tricked up for prayer. This synagogue was all of luxury many of its sons could boast. It was their salon and their lecture-hall. It supplied them not only with their religion, but their art and letters, their politics and their amusements. It was their home, as well as the Almighty's, and on occasion they were familiar and even a little vulgar with him. It was a place in which they could sit in their slippers. Uh, metaphorically, that is, for though they frequently did so literally, it was by way of reverence, not ease. They enjoyed themselves in this shul of theirs. They shouted and skipped and shook and sang and wailed and moaned. They clenched their fists and thumped their breasts, and they were not the least happy when they were crying. There is an apocryphal anecdote of one of them being caught in the act of taking a pinch of snuff when the vidui, the confession, caught him unexpectedly. Ashamnu, we have trespassed, he wailed mechanically, as he spasmodically put the snuff into his bosom and beat his nose with his clenched fist. They prayed metaphysics, acrostics, angelology. Kabbalah, history, exegesis, 
Talmudical controversies, menus, recipes, priestly prescriptions, the canonical books, the psalms, love poems, an undigested hotchpotch of exalted and questionable sentiments, of communal and egotistical aspirations of the highest order. It was a wonderful liturgy, as grotesque as it was beautiful, like an old cathedral in all styles of architecture, stored with shabby antiques and side-shows, and overgrown with moss and lichen, a heterogeneous blend of historical strata of all periods, in which the gems of poetry and pathos and spiritual fervour glittered, and pitiful records of ancient persecutions lay petrified. And the method of praying these things was equally complex and uncouth, equally the bond-slave of tradition, here a rising, and there a bow, now three steps backwards, and now a beating of the breast, this bit for the congregation, and that for the minister. Variants of a page, a word, a symbol, even a vowel, ready for every possible contingency. Their religious consciousness was largely a musical box, a thrill of the ram's horn, the cadenza of a psalmic phrase, the jubilance of a festival, Amen, and the sobriety of a workaday, Amen. The Passover melodies and the Pentecost, the minor keys of atonement, and the hilarious rhapsodies of rejoicing, the plain chant of the law, and the more ornate intonation of the prophets. All this was known and loved, and was far more important than the meaning of it all, or its relation to their real lives. For page upon page was gabbled off at rates that could not be excelled by automata. But if they did not always know what they were saying, they always meant it. If the service had been more intelligible, it would have been less emotional and edifying. There was not a sentiment, however incomprehensible, for which they were not ready to die or to damn. Kol Yisrael Chavarim All Israel are brethren. And indeed there was a strange antique clannishness about these sons of the covenant, which in the modern world, where the ends of the ages meet, is socialism. They prayed for one another while alive, visited one another's bedsides when sick, buried one another when dead. No mercenary hands poured the yolks of eggs over their dead faces, and arrayed their corpses in their praying shawls. No hired masses were said for the sick or the troubled, for the psalm-singing services of the B'nai B'ris were always available for petitioning the heavens. Even though their brothers were arrested for buying stolen goods, and the service might be an invitation to Providence to compound a felony, little charities of their own they had too, a Sabbath meal society, and a marriage portion society, to buy the sticks for poor couples. And when a pauper countryman arrived from Poland, one of them boarded him, 
and another lodged him, and a third taught him a trade. Strange exotics in a land of prose, carrying with them through the paved highways of London the odour of continental ghettos, and bearing in their eyes through all the shrewdness of their glances the eternal mysticism of the Orient, where God was born. Hawkers and peddlers, tailors and cigar-makers, cobblers and farriers, glaziers and cap-makers. This was, in sum, their life, to pray much and to work long, to beg a little and to cheat a little, to eat not overmuch and to drink scarce at all, to beget annual children by chaste wives, disallowed them half the year, and to rear them not over well, to study the law and the prophets, and to reverence the rabbinical tradition, and the chaos of commentaries expounding it, to abase themselves before the life of man, and Joseph Caro's Shulchan Aruch, the set table, as though the authors had presided at the foundations of the earth, to wear phylacteries and fringes, to fill in and tzitzits, to keep the beard unshaven, and the corners of the hair uncut, to know no work on Sabbath, and no rest on weekday. It was a series of recurrent landmarks, ritual and historical, of intimacy with God so continuous that they were in danger of forgetting His existence, as of the air they breathed. They ate unleavened bread on Passover, and blessed the moon, and counted the days of the Omer until Shavuos, Pentecost, saw the synagogue dressed with flowers in celebration of an Asiatic fruit harvest by a European people divorced from agriculture. They passed to the terrors and triumphs of the new year, with its domestic symbolism of apple and honey and its procession to the river, and the revelry of repentance on the great white fast, Yom Kippur, when they burned long candles, and whirled fowls round their heads, and attired themselves in grave clothes, and saw from their seats in synagogue the long fast day darken slowly into dusk, while God was sealing the decrees of life and death. They passed to Sukkus, tabernacles, when they ran up rough booths in backyards, draped with their bedsheets and covered with greenery, and bore through the streets citrons in boxes, and waving a combination of myrtle and palm and willow branches, wherewith they made a pleasant rustling in the synagogue, and thence to Simchas Torah, rejoicing of the law when they danced and drank rum in the house of the Lord, and scrambled sweets for the little ones, and made a sevenfold circuit with the two scrolls, supplemented by toy flags and children's candles stuck in hollow carrots. And then on to Hanukkah, dedication, with its celebration of the Maccabean deliverance and the miracle of the unwaning oil in the temple, and to Purim, with its masquerading and its execration of Haman's name, boo, by the banging of little hammers.
and so back to Passover. And with these larger cycles, epicycles of minor fasts and feasts, multiplex, not to be overlooked, from the fast of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Ab, fatal day for the race, when they sat on the ground in shrouds and wailed for the destruction of Jerusalem, to the feast of the great Hosanna, when they whipped away willow leaves on the shawl benches in symbolism of forgotten sins, sitting up the whole of the night before in a long paroxysm of prayer, mitigated by coffee and cakes, from the period in which nuts were prohibited to the period in which marriages were commended. And each day, too, had its cycles of religious duty, its comprehensive and cumbrous ritual with accretions of commentary and tradition, and every contingency of the individual life was equally provided for, and the writings that regulated all this complex ritual are a marvellous monument of the patience, piety, and juristic genius of the race, and of the persecution which threw it back upon its sole treasure, the Torah, the law. Thus they lived and died, these Benebris, these sons of the covenant, half automata, sternly disciplined by voluntary and involuntary privation, hemmed and mewed in by iron walls of form and poverty, joyfully ground under the perpetual rotary wheel of ritualism, good-humoured withal and caustic like all people whose religion stands much upon ceremony. Inasmuch as a ritual law comes to count equally with a moral, and a man is not half bad, who does three-fourths of his duty. And so the stuffy room, with its guttering candles and its chameleon-coloured paroches, the arc curtain, was the pivot of their barren lives. Joy came to bear to it the offering of its thanksgiving, and to vow sixpenny bits to the Lord. Prosperity came in a high hat to chafer for the holy privileges, and grief came to rent garments, to lament the beloved dead, and to glorify the name of the Eternal. The poorest life is to itself the universe and all that therein is. And these humble products of a great and terrible past, strange fruits of a motley flowering secular tree, whose roots are in Canaan, and whose boughs overshadow the earth, were all the happier for not knowing that the fullness of life was not theirs. And the years went rolling on, and the children grew up, and here and there a parent. End of chapter 15, section 1